The Bible often uses the metaphor of running as a description of the Christian life. We're said to be running a race. And of course, when one sets out to run a race for competition, just for fun, one needs to know the boundaries. They need to know the track that they're going to run on, the surface. They need to know, of course, the destination in mind. All the runners in the race need to know where the end is in order to pace themselves, in order to prepare themselves, and frankly, to know when it's going to end. If anyone has ever run, we, you know that sometimes the end is the greatest part. It's over. Whether you run for leisure or run because you're scared of something, all of us have that kind of common experience, right? Everyone in this room has ran at some point in their life. Maybe not today, maybe not for several decades, but you've ran. And the Bible uses that as a metaphor because it, you understand it. It's common to everyone in this room. It's common for God created us. I know it seems contrary to nature, but God gave us the ability to run. As Christians, as we think about that metaphor of running and having the end, the destination in mind, where we're going in mind, Paul here in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is painting for us the destination. He's giving us the, the roadmap, if you will, uh, where we're running the race. And he's saying, this is what you should be aiming at. These are the kind of characteristics that we should see kind of pop up, if you will, in the Christian life. Uh, love, for example, should be that chief virtue of the Christian life that believers should be striving towards. And so throughout this section, Paul is painting this picture, giving us the aim, the destination or goal of the Christian life. We could summarize it by saying godliness is the goal, right? Godliness is the goal in the Christian life. Our goal is to be like God, to be conformed into his image, we heard that theme earlier in the, in the letter, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, about how God saved us as sinners and is transforming us and making us a new creation in Christ, right? So this, this theme of new birth or new creation, the old is gone and behold, the new has come, is really the theme of the letter when you connect it to the word grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The word grace runs throughout all of the letter of Ephesians. And so you could say that by grace, God has saved you wretched sinners, myself included, uh, to make us holy. And so over the last few weeks, we've been thinking about how we go from our old ways to our new ways. When you're learning how to run, you need to, to learn how to put one foot in front of the other. Uh, you need to learn that certain posture is good and certain posture is bad. So, for example, if you are going to think about running, probably not, you uh, don't want to run with your shoulders down. If you run with your shoulders down, you, you see people running on the street and they are bent over forward running. 
they're actually exerting more effort than if they were upright when they were running. If you have your arms down to the side, you're exerting more effort than you have your arms up. If you have your head down when you're running, you're exerting more effort than having your head up. And so as Christians, we need to learn how to run the race. We need to learn how to put on this new life that we've received in Christ. And so Paul here throughout this section in chapter 4 is describing how we take off these old ways and put on new ways. Last week we thought about three of them. About the way we speak, about the way we are angry and not sinful. And then we thought how we work hard. So as Christians, we are to put on these new characteristics. And we're going to begin, we're going to continue this list today looking at three more. Next week we'll finish up. Looking at the last two. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 29, the middle of the paragraph there. Look for that little 29. Paul continues Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Well, the, th- the point of the passage is really the same as it's been throughout, that as Christians, we learn to put off our old ways by putting on our new ways in Christ This new way in Christ, I argued last week and I'll argue again next week, is characterized by walking in love. Look with me again at chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul will continue his thought into chapter 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, we could summarize each of these points by saying walk in love. Walk in love. And so the purpose of this sermon is really for us to see practical ways that you and I are to honor God in our lives. Uh, Practical ways we are to walk in love. And Paul here outlines three practical ways we walk in love. Namely, walk in love by edifying others. Walk in love by pleasing the Holy Spirit. Walk in love by caring for one another. So three points this morning. And again, before I dive into the outline, I just want to show you Paul's thinking. All right. Look at, look at the text. This is not my outline. This is Paul's outline. All right. What Paul did here is, is give us a bunch of relational commands, right? I pointed that out last week. The, the, the Christian life is to be lived in relationship with other Christians. There's no Lone Ranger Christian faith. We are in a community. And so Christianity by nature is communal, right? And uh, which is why we have something called communion, right? Uh, you got, oh, I wondered why that was in there. Um, community, right? It's to emphasize our unity in Christ. Secondly, notice here in the text that, that negative commands are followed by positive commands. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. Notice Paul is continuing that, that um, 
That's that standard throughout. He's saying negative, don't do this, do this. Does that make sense? And so throughout this, Paul is emphasizing repentance. What does it look like to repent? It, it looks like stop this and do this, right? And then thirdly, you'll see throughout the text that, that at each point, Paul gives us a motivation. He gives us some motivation uh, to obey the command. So again, look at verse 29 as an example. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. As fits the occasion, here's the, here's the motivation, so that it may give grace to those who hear. So you may give grace to those who hear. And so Paul gives us the motivation to obey. So let's look at these three points for us uh, with us this morning. First, we are to walk in love by edifying others. We are to walk in love by edifying others. Notice what Paul says there. He begins by giving us the negative command. He says, stop doing this. Paul returns to a theme that he began with back in verse 25, namely speaking. Speaking. He says, you need to stop talking hurtful speech. The word that Paul uses here in verse 29 of corrupting talk is the word that they would use to describe rotting fish, smelly food. In other words, Paul is saying, stop using stinky words, right? Filthy language, right? Paul, again, in chapter 5 and verse 4, will emphasize speech. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. That's a different context, but you can see again, Paul emphasizing what comes out of our mouth is important. Jesus himself taught that, right? Jesus taught, you brought a brood of vipers. How can you speak good when, when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? In other words, what Jesus is emphasizing, what Paul is talking about here, is that our mouths reveal our heart. We're good at hiding. We're good at using that clothing metaphor. You know, putting on nice clothes and cleaning ourselves up. But the problem is, is, is our hearts are still messed up. They're still filthy. And so what comes out of our mouths is filth. And so Paul here is saying that you must put these away. Now, people who work in speech industry will tell you that, uh, that our speech patterns are formed at a very young age. We, we learn to speak in certain ways when we're very young. And so those patterns continue until we are older. That's why, by the way, older if you're saved at an older age, you struggle with cursing, even though you want to stop. <laughs> it's because that pattern has been created. You only know those vocab that vocabulary, and that's the only way you can talk. We see here in this passage that as Christians, our words matter. How we talk to one another matters. And Paul's writing to a group of people who would have been accustomed to living in a culture like our own. We know that our culture is not shy when it comes to using vulgar language. We hear it from our friends and family. We hear it blasted across the television, even in our music. We hear um, explicit language. And Paul calls that language corrupting language, right? 
It, 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 it's not passive, in other words. You know, so often we, we think our words are kind of passive. They, they don't have effect. But the Bible has this sort of repeated testimony that our words are powerful, right? And with our words, we can build up or we can obliterate somebody. And maybe you're that kind of gifted individual. I don't mean gifted in a positive way. That you can, with your words, completely destroy another human soul. Or perhaps you've been the victim of one who with their words have destroyed you. And spoken down to you and tore you apart. It's so sad that often that kind of behavior we see in the church just as much in the culture. So often in our lives, what we do is look just like the world around us. And Paul says that as Christians, our words, our speech, the way we talk to one another must be edifying, not hurtful. Peter O'Brien, commenting on this particular text, writes, What is prohibited then is harmful speech of any kind, whether it be abusive language, vulgar speech, or slander and contemptuous talk. Lips given to this kind of utterance not only defile the speaker, but are also destructive of the communal life. When we use hurtful speech toward one another, we are dividing the church. We are actually breaking apart the church. We are taking a sledgehammer to the church every time we utter hurtful words to one another. Paul tells us there's a better way. The, the way home is by edifying and encouraging one another, building one another up. In other words, we have a different goal with our speech. Our speech has a purpose, and that purpose is to encourage others and not hurt others. Augustine is said to have hung a sign on his dining room wall that said, Whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. I think like, we need that over here, maybe. So often in the church, we are tempted to gossip. It is so easy to slip into that, to, to constantly just speak negatively about others. I mean, nobody, you know, the, Proverbs, for example, gives the example of a nagging wife, you know. It would be better to live with a, the repeating sound of, of, of rain on a, on a gutter than to listen to a nagging wife. Right? Nobody wants to be nagged at all the time and talked down to. Nobody wants that. And sometimes we create an atmosphere in our church when we constantly tear others down rather than seek to encourage them. Well, let's look forward what we're, what we're to put on. We're to take off this sort of filthy language with our mouths and, and to put on. Notice what he writes there in verse 29. But only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who in need. In other words, what Paul says here is to put on helpful speech, take off hurtful speech, put on things that actually help. You know, so often I'm guilty of this, so I'm going to confess this publicly. But, you know, so often we're like chatterboxes. We sometimes we talk too much. And when you talk too much, you tend to say things that are not helpful. I have, a, I have a really good pastor friend, and he'll often, when he's saying, anybody have a question? Like he'll never ask that. He'll, what he'll say, does anybody have a question that will be helpful for everyone in the room? Right? 
Because <laughs> there's just dumb questions out there, right? And, and it's like, okay, that, that wasn't helpful, okay? So sometimes when we say things, they're, they're not bad, but they're not helpful. Well, was that helpful? Was that encouragement? Did that, that help encourage a brother or sister in need? Notice here the language that Paul uses. He says that is good for building up. In other words, there's a purpose. The goal of our speech should be to build others. To encourage others. To build. That's, that's the construction word, right? You know, so often I'll hear uh, younger people, younger members particularly, uh, not in our church, but sometimes, they'll say, no, you know, we got to be careful, you know, um, when we're emphasizing doing a lot of work, like manual labor stuff, because it might make the older members feel bad because they can't do it. And I'm like, um, and, and then, I, then I go to this verse and I say, well, right here, Anyone can physically do labor, build the church, right? So, so this morning, if you're kind of discouraged thinking, you know, I can't actively participate in the church because physically I can't come and, you know, paint walls or, fit, you know, as if that's what we really need. But, but you can do something with your mouth. Can you speak? Can you text? Can you write emails? Do you, does your hand work? So I don't think Paul just is meaning here verbal communication. I think Paul's point here is all communication of all kind. In other words, we are to communicate with one another in such a way. I, I find such an encouragement when members text me throughout the week and, and just, you know, hey, pastor, praying for you. Or, hey, just want to let you know, God really answered this prayer. Thank you for praying this week for this particular need. That's encouraging. They're encur- you're encouraging me. So I'm not saying you have to pick up the phone and have hour-long conversations with people, but if you have the ability to text, send a text. Hey, thinking about you today, want to just pray for you today. Hey, just wanted you to know that Jesus is king. I was joking with the girls before church this morning um, that my response when people get all frustrated is Jesus is king. It's okay. God is still sovereign. He's still on the throne. I don't really, you know, the sky is not falling in my world, all right? Uh, Jesus is still king, right? And so that, you may need that. You don't know. And so uh, maybe you can't text. So write a letter. Uh, Pick up the phone. Call. There's so many ways that you can be actively involved in obeying this verse. Now, why is Paul so concerned about our speech? He dealt with it in verse 25. He talked about it earlier when we were speaking about unity, that we were to speak the truth in love to one another. He, he, He repeated it in verse 25. And then he repeats it here. He's like really hung up on speech. Why? Because it's the one of the closest ways that you're like God. If you read your Old Testament, when God is confronting idolatry, you will see a repeated theme that God says, God says, God says. In other words, the one thing that distinguishes our God from all the other fake gods is that our God can talk. From Genesis 1 through Revelation, God is the one speaking. And so when you speak words of encouragement, you are being imitators of God. You're obeying chapter 5 and verse 1. You're imitating God by speaking. Our God is a speaking God. 
And so one of the greatest ways you can defame God's glory is by using your lips that he created in his image and using it to destroy another human being. Notice here Paul's motivation. Look at the motivation that Paul gives. Why should we do this? So that it may give grace to those who hear. The word that Paul uses there is that that word, that grace word, that word that for by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, what Paul is speaking here is that when you speak, you are speaking gospel grace to one another. It gives grace. In other words, the kind of speech that's helpful isn't just general, your you know, wise sayings on life. I don't really care about uh, those at all. Rather, what Paul has in mind here is gospel words. Back to my illustration. You know, when, when someone texts me and tells me, you know, they're sick, for example. So I was texting a member this morning. My response to them isn't merely, I'm praying for you. Like, oh, thank you. Appreciate that. That's, that's no, it's to encourage them with the gospel. For example, Jesus is sovereign over your life. That's gospel. What, in other words, what you need to be given out and dishing out here is grace, gospel bombs, gospel truth. You need to be divvying out scripture to one another. And so what Paul has in mind here isn't for us to just kind of uh, have uh, little psychology groups where we're, we're helping one another with our wise advice, but rather pointing people to the grace of God in Christ. That what you need to be speaking, what's going to build one another up, are the words of Jesus. And so think about that. Think about your Bible reading your daily Bible reading in the morning or in the evening or whenever you're doing it as an opportunity for you to mine words of grace to give out. That, that throughout your life or throughout the day that you become a grace giver. That all these words, you're, you're like, oh man, I read today. And, and, and you, you go and give it to another believer. You go give it to one of the members of our congregation. You actually talk to them outside of Sunday morning. I know they exist. Everyone exists outside of Sunday morning. You, you call them, they'll answer. You go by their house. They might be surprised, but they'll be there. We are to speak one another and encourage one another with words to edify one another. So many ways that we could think about application, but Paul's point remains the same, that we are to put off the old man, put on the new by speaking Edifying words to one another. Be a grace giver. Give grace out to one another. Each Lord's Day and throughout the week, encouraging one another all the more as the day draws near. Well, secondly, here in the text, Paul continues in verse 30 to give us, I believe, uh, kind of a, a motivation and that negative command all wrapped up in one. He writes, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We are to walk in love, we could say positively, by pleasing the Holy Spirit. If we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit, we're to please the Holy Spirit. Well, this passage is, is very fruitful if, you, if you've not thought about it much. Uh, number one, Paul uses the word grief. Do not grieve. 
In other words, it means don't distress the Holy Spirit. Don't upset the Holy Spirit. To to grieve somebody is to upset them. To, To cause them pain. To hurt them. When you and I sin, we hurt the Holy Spirit. We cause pain to the Spirit. Now, there's a th- couple of things we could think about this. Number one, we learn something about the Holy Spirit. That He is a personal being. Only persons can feel pain. Only persons can feel grief, right? The Holy Spirit is a personal being. God, the Spirit, is a person. Just as much as God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Our triune God is a personal God. And he created us as personal beings like him. And so as you think about the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is God. Notice what he writes there in the text. The Holy Spirit of God. Or you could say it this way. God's Holy Spirit. The one that we heard articulated in the Nicene Creed, 381. Uh, That creed was written because the church was splitting over the doctrine of the Spirit. The church was dividing East and West because they didn't believe the Holy Spirit was divine, was fully God. They had a right understanding of the Father and the Son, but a wrong doctrine of the Spirit. And so as the church was thinking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, they came to the conclusion that the scriptures teach that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. A number of years later, the church east and west would divide, which is why you have the Orthodox Church dividing over the issue of the Spirit here in this text. Having a different understanding of God, the Holy Spirit, than we do as Orthodox biblical Christians. And so in the text here this morning, I want you to see that the spirit is a personal being. But secondly, I want you to see that that the fact the spirit cares. It, It says that he's grieved. That means he actually cares about you. That implies that the Holy Spirit cares about you, that this spirit that we've learned about, the spirit that has sealed us, that we learned in chapter 1, the spirit that has illumined the scriptures to us, the one who's given us new birth, the one that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is indwelt in us, the spirit that lives in us. The, The Holy Spirit is grieved when we sin. Just as a parent grieves over a child's sin, and is emotionally disturbed and upset when their child is in sin. So the Spirit of God is broken when we give ourselves to sin. Spurgeon, thinking about this text, writes, For it is an inexpressibly delightful thought that he who rules heaven and earth and is the creator of all things and the infinite and ever blessed God condescends to enter such finite, infinite rather relationships with his people that his divine mind may be affected by their actions. In other words, that the divine God would care about us weak individuals so much that he would be hurt 
when we sin. God is hurt when we sin. Now, now when Paul gives this exhortation, do not grieve the spirit, what kind of sins does he have in mind? Well, I think it would be the preceding sins that we've talked about. In other words, yes, the spirit, we could say generally is grieved when we sin of any kind. Any type of sin grieves the spirit. Other passages, but that's not the context of this verse. This verse is about community. In other words, when you sin in these ways that we've seen by speaking lies to other believers in the church, when you are angry and don't get over it quickly, uh, verse 27, I'm sorry, verse 28, when you steal and are not a generous giver, or in the text we just considered, when we speak corrupting words from our mouths and tear other fellow believers down, that's what hurts the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to think about that. That's a motivation to not do those things, isn't it? Paul is saying, every time you come to church and you tear down another believer because you're a wicked sinner, rather than encouraging them, do you know the Spirit of God is hurt? The Spirit is distressed. He is in anguish over that. Sins against the body of Christ, sins against other Christians, and like those listed here, demonstrates, I believe, the seriousness of following these commands. These are not some passing commands. You know, we can, many of us could probably tell horror stories of, of conversations we've had with other believers, or maybe we've been willing participants in them, where we've hurt others with our words, other Christians with our words. I just find this verse particularly weighty in the life of a congregation and how so easily we often talk to one another and deal harshly with one another and not love and care for one another. We're just, we're rude and jerks, just mean. And we chalk it up as, you know, that's just my personality. I'm just a jerk to everybody. Well, you know what? No. If you are new creation in Christ, that old dude's gone. Jesus warned us. Jesus warned his disciples. He says, if you cause one of these little ones to sin, it would be better if someone tied a big old rock around your neck and threw you into the lake. And when he was saying little ones, he wasn't talking about little children. He was talking about little faith, those who were weak in their faith. Jesus warns us about sinning against one another. Because we're fallen creatures, we are going to sin against one another. We are going to hurt one another. We are going to do those things. But we need to have the right motivation to put on our new clothes in Christ. And the motivation there is in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And notice he follows it up by saying, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That word seal is that word mark. We're not talking about the mark of the beast, the seal of the beast. You know, Christians have a seal also. It's the seal of the Spirit. It's a side note. You don't need to freak out about the mark of the beast, all right? If you've been sealed by the Spirit, you, you're sealed. You've been marked. You're, you're his. In other words, you've been stamped. Mine. I own that. That's what God's done by the Spirit. The indwelling of the Spirit marks you out as a believer. You've been sealed for redemption. The one who is getting you to heaven, why would you want to upset him? 
That's like you pestering the person driving the car. If you keep messing with the person driving the car, making them mad and upsetting them, they're going to pull over and kick you out of the car. Thankfully, the Spirit doesn't do that. But why would we want to upset the very one who is helping us get to heaven? Who's helping us throughout our lives? Who, who Paul writes in Colossians says, it is the power of the Spirit that is at work in me. The one who gives you the ability to read your stinking Bible and understand it. Why would you upset him? As Christians, we seek to please the Holy Spirit by loving others. So every time you, you lovingly care for other believers and do all that we're talking about positively, puts a smile on the Spirit. The Spirit is encouraged to see you growing. He's the one conforming you into the image of Christ. Well, thirdly, we see here that we are to walk in love by caring for one another. By caring for one another. Paul lists in verses 31 and 32 a list of vices to take off and a list of virtues to put on. All of these are centered really very similar in this list, a list that is parallel in other passages in Scripture. Notice what he writes there in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, bitterness. Are you a bitter person? Bitterness is the fruit of not letting things go. Bitterness comes from a spirit of entitlement, I believe. Thinking that, you owe, that you're owed certain things in life. And when you don't get those things, you become bitter. So, for example, you think you're entitled to a certain pastoral care. And you become bitter when you don't get it. Uh, you're, you think you're entitled to certain things from other members, and when you don't get it, you become bitter. Uh, you think you're entitled to you know, certain forgiveness, and you don't get it and become bitter. We notice also in this list, not only bitterness, but, but words similar to what we considered last week of anger, and wrath, rage. As Christians, we should not be marked by a sense of rage. There's nothing, I think, more despicable than to seeing Christians flying off the handle at other Christians. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. Perhaps you're given into fierce bits of anger and shouting. The, the word clamor there, I, it's not a word we use all the time, but, but the word literally means to shout. A shouting match, right? He could have just put in there a Baptist members meeting. Don't do that, right? Don't be like, right? Shouting match. You've all been, right? you laughing because you've been to them. They're despicable. They're horrid. And they're not of Christ. As brothers and sisters of Christ, we should stop that. That's what Paul's saying. Let me just exhort us as a congregation. If we ever do that, someone who's sane needs to stand up and Take this verse and smack everybody with it and say, Paul says right here that we're to stop doing this, that this is not of Christ. Right? So we're to put these things off shouting. Notice here slander again. You, you see the theme here of our words matter slander and malice sort of malice being that that really forceful malice, intentionally hurting others, going out of your way to cause someone else's pain. It's 
Brothers and sisters, we live in a fallen world and we are fallen creatures and we might be given into these things. Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to Cadenceville Baptist Church telling, telling us, hey, all of these things are present here. Maybe it's not evident, but I bet you some in here today are struggling with bitterness. Perhaps you've been or have feelings of anger towards another member of our church. Perhaps you've been slandering another member with your words. You've been speaking falsehoods, lies about them. Perhaps you've been intentionally deceiving others about them. Paul says, put that away. Take that off, he says. James writes in a text we heard last week, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Whoever speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. We're not to speak evil of one another, Paul says. But we're to put on righteous virtues. So we're not just to merely stop doing that. We're to, we're to do something positive. What was the positive exhortation? Look again, verse 32. Rather, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, the characteristics we should see, well, the conversations that we should be having and I think celebrating are these conversations in verse 32. Our words of kindness, our compassionate hearts, our forgiveness. Uh, brother, our, sister, are you kind to other believers? Are there members of our church that annoy you and that you don't like? Why? Well, why do you struggle to get to know them? What, what is it? What have they done? What, what, how have they hurt you? What have they said? Kindness, of course, is that virtue of caring. To be kind means that you actually care about the, the individual. You actually care about them because they're your brother or sister. Paul goes on in his list to say tender-hearted. In other words, compassionate. Do you have compassion for others? Do you care that, that, that a brother or a sister is caught in unrepentant sin? Do you care? Do, do you have tender heart when you come here every single week and there are members of our church that never come? And do you, you know, it's one thing to be kind of like compassionate, like, you know, man, that stinks. But the compassion that Paul, the word Paul uses here is compassion that moves to action. Does that make sense? In other words, it's one thing to see someone in need. It's an entirely different thing to see the need and meet the need. What Paul is talking about here is for us to be compassionate, to see the need. That brother's in sin. And to go to that brother and exhort him, repent and believe in Jesus. The verse that you heard earlier, our sister read in Matthew 18. The verse that precedes that is where Jesus taught his disciples about repentance and faith. About how if, you, if a brother is caught in sin, how you're to go to that brother 
And call him to repentance. And if he doesn't repent, then you're going to take some more brothers with you. And they don't, if he still doesn't repent, then you're going to excommunicate him from the church because he's not a believer. And we believe in regenerate church membership. And so this is one, I think, one application that I want to bring home to you. One of the ways that you show kindness to other believers, one way that you show compassion to other believers is by going to them when they are in sin and exhorting them lovingly with the gospel to repent in Jesus. It is not kind of us to, it's not kind of us to enable a friend, a so-called brother or sister in Christ, to persist in their delusion, to think they're going to heaven. Paul will say over here in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let, let no one deceive you, brother or sister, to think that if you persist in unrepentant sin, you're going to heaven. You're not. It ain't happening. I'm just lovingly telling you, because I, I love you and I don't want you to go to hell. If you don't let your sin go, and turn to Christ and believe in Him and find Him sufficient, you will spend eternity in hell. So turn from your sin and trust in Christ and flee. We are in a community together. We are all trying to help each other get to heaven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, let's encourage one another in that way. Well, Paul goes on in this verse, in verse 32, that we're not only to be kind to one another and tender-hearted to one another, but we are to be forgiving of one another. Paul here is talking about forgiveness in the church. Surely we're to forgive those outside of the church, but here he's talking specifically of the local church, of the gathering of saints on the Lord's day that we are to forgive one another. We are to forgive. Forgiveness is pretty clear. We are not merely to say, you know, sorry, and then our response, okay. That, that's not forgiveness, right? Or the old adage, forgive and forget, right? That's the idea. To forgive means you don't hold it over the person anymore. To forgive Biblically means that you give it to God. We heard the parable of the unforgiving servant earlier. You got to love Peter's question. I mean, you would have asked the same question. How many, how many times do I have to forgive this guy? Like, you know, Peter, <laughs> he's kind of super spiritual. Uh, the number seven is kind of a, in, in the Old Testament, is kind of a very per, it's a perfect number. Um, it's viewed in Jewish culture as, as perfection, seven, the number seven. And so, you know, Peter, super spiritual Peter, uh, he's always, you know, getting an A in class. And he raises his hand. He said, how about seven times? Would that be good? And Jesus' response to him isn't to say, you know, yeah, you, oh, no, no, not seven or seven times seven. You'll find variance in that or, or 77 times. In other words, what Jesus says is, 
There's never a time where you'll ever arrive where you don't forgive. In other words, Jesus is saying there will never be a case where you don't forgive a brother or sister who repents. Never. And Jesus has a very stern warning at the end of that parable. I hope you didn't miss it. He says, if you don't forgive a brother or sister, my father ain't going to forgive you. That means you ain't getting to heaven. Because only forgiven people go to heaven. That's scary, right? He warns them. He says, look, if you are unwilling to forgive, we could think about it this way, of course. If we're unwilling to forgive them, but God has forgiven them, what does that say about us? We are broken. As Christians, we are to love others by, by, by forgiving. Notice the motivation here. Very clear, isn't it? I mean, Paul just sticks it in him. He says, as God in Christ forgave you. He says, hey, you rotten scoundrel. God forgave you your horrific sins, your adulterous affairs, your lying words. God forgave you, you wicked man, and you're unwilling to forgive others. So the standard of our forgiveness is, is God's forgiveness of us. In other words, we could say it positively. The way we imitate God is by forgiveness. Just as with our words, we are acting like God, God-like, godly. So when we are forgiving. So every time you forgive, it's not a moment so you can feel good about yourself. It's a moment to reflect God's glory to those around them. In other words, when you forgive a brother or sister in Christ, here's what you're doing. You are showing them Jesus. You're showing them Jesus. You're taking them to Jesus. Jesus is reflected in your behavior, in your life. They're seeing Jesus in you. That's what I'm praying often, that you commend the gospel with your lives. That's what I mean, that your forgiveness commends the gospel. It points people back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need no greater motivation then the forgiveness that we have received in Christ. Our debt has been paid. Who are we to make others live indebted to us? Brother, sister, this morning, is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone perhaps in this congregation that you need to forgive? Perhaps it's some, another Christian who's not in this congregation, who's somehow hurt you. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say if they've come begging you for their forgiveness. See, forgiveness is on us. We can't control what the other person does. We would hope that they would repent if they've harmed us. That's the, our hope. But right now, what you need to deal with is not them, but your own heart. Do you forgive them of the pain and hurt that I don't mean to diminish. I don't mean to wash away. I don't mean to, to belittle how hurtful and harmful it was to you. But I do mean to make Jesus glorious for you to turn from that sin. And to forgive them. To let it go. To give it to Christ. 
What a way to pray this week for your own souls and for others. Confess, I'm struggling forgiving this person. Help us pray for you in that way. Don't be ashamed and say, oh my gosh, you know, I don't want to talk about this. But if it's genuine in your heart, confess it. And let's pray that you can forgive others. As Christians, we are to learn to put off these old ways. We are to learn to put on new robes of righteousness. To to edify others with our words. To please the Spirit by our care and tender forgiveness and compassionate hearts towards one another. In all these ways, we imitate God as His beloved children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that we have received in Christ. We do trust that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that we have found a Savior in Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. We believe in Him. And we believe that these ways, these old ways, lead to eternal damnation. They do not lead to life. Father, help us to walk as children of light, for that we are. For your glory and our good in Christ's name we pray. Amen.